The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money. Hi, welcome to the Online Marketing Show. I'm your host, Joey Bushnell. Today I have with me a fantastic copywriter. His name is Andy Maslin. You can find out more about Andy over at copywritingacademy.co.uk. Andy, thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Oh, thanks, Joey. It's great to be here with you. Andy, how did you become a copywriter? Um, kind of by accident, really. I mean, a lot of people, you know, you read on copywriters' websites, you think they had a, a dream of being a copywriter from the cradle. You know, for me, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after university. But I, I got a, you know, a marketing job uh, in a marketing department doing a lot of direct mail and press. And I just found that, you know, I had to do everything to sell these uh, market research reports. And it was the copywriting aspect that I liked the best. And because we directly relied on copy to sell reports, you know, I was pretty successful. You know, and I, I got promoted and promoted. And in that classic thing, I ended up at the level of my own incompetence, which was I was the marketing director there. Mm-hmm. And uh Apparently, marketing directors aren't supposed to sneak off and write copy. You know, you're supposed to delegate that and spend your time doing meetings and strategy. So uh, it, it, it eventually, I think it was a kind of parting of the ways. You know, the, the owners of the business realized that I was a very overpaid copywriter and a pretty unhappy marketing director. So I set up um, on my own as Sunfish in 96, my own copywriting agency, and, and never looked back, really. You also have a couple of books, Andy? Uh, that's right. Um, four in total. Three of them are on copywriting itself. Yeah. Um, right to Sell came out in 1997, 2007, sorry. And um, at that point, it sort of summed up everything I'd learned in the previous 20-odd years about copywriting. Mm-hmm. Um, I followed it up with a couple of others, and then most recently a book about freelancing. So not how to write copy, but how to make money out of it. Brilliant. Right to Sell, which you mentioned at the beginning there, that was one of the first ever books which I read on copywriting. It's a really great book. So most of the questions in today's interview are based around uh, concepts in that book. That's what I'd like to talk about today, Andy. My first question is, where do most people go wrong when it comes to copywriting? Wow, that's a good question. Um, I guess, for me... The, the biggest thing I see, and I've coached and trained a lot of copywriters, uh, freelancers and, and in-house people, marketers, is there's this big misconception about, you know, this is at the absolute top level. Where do people go wrong? There's a big misconception that it's all about words, which might seem like a, a wonky thing to say. But surely it is about words. And you see people say, oh, I love I love writing. I've, ever since my degree in English, I've always loved playing around with words. I think you have to be good with people. Copywriting is all about selling. Um, the writing is the sort of, you know, the, the writing is the way that you communicate these ideas to the people you're selling to. But it's having the ideas in the first place that separates the sheep from the goats. So that where people go wrong is they start by thinking about language, if you like. Mm-hmm. You give them a brief, you give them a product. And the first thing they do is they want to go and sit down at a keyboard and I think you have to sit there, lean back in your chair, close your eyes and start thinking, what is this person's 
problem. This person that I'm going to sell to, they don't, you know, they will come onto this, I guess, but they don't really, they know they've got a problem. They don't know you've got a product. Mm-hmm. So what concerns them and what motivates them is this itch they're trying to scratch or this problem they're trying to solve. And, and the, one of the questions I always sort of ask myself is what keeps this person awake at three o'clock in the morning? You know, we've all done it. You're lying there. You wish you were asleep. Something's bugging you. You know, you're feeling anxious or whatever. You're just awake, worrying around this subject. If you can narrow your search down in terms of the, you know, your copywriting search to that one question, that's where I think selling starts, really. So somebody once said to me, it's not about whether you can spell, it's about whether you can sell. And I think that's a great little mantra for, for copywriters. Um, if we drill down a bit and say within copywriting itself, you know, what are the big kind of tactical mistakes? It, it's such an obvious one. I can't believe I'm going to say this in, in 2013, but people are still preoccupied with features rather than benefits. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure your other interviewees over the years, and you've talked to some pretty, you know, big names, I said kind of the same thing, but if you, you know, I do a lot of work with people in the conferences industry, and the first thing they do is they get hold of the agenda, mm-hmm. and you'll find that 90% of the available real estate on the promotion is taken up with the agenda, but nobody goes to a conference for the agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, people go to the conference because they're going to meet new people, they're going to get a new job, they're going to have a bit of a laugh, they're going to, you know, kick back a little bit, and and all of those kind of things that mean it's worth spending time away from your family and your job and everything else. So that's, you know, for me, that's the big tactical thing is still people are obsessed, particularly in-house, I would say, less over three months, is obsessed with features. So specifically, how can we get to know our customer and know what they really want? Um, Okay, Uh, that's a good question. You know, we don't always have an obvious way to do that. And I guess the first thing, that you can do, and you know, I find this more difficult now working as an independent you know, with an agency. Is that ideally you meet them, you talk to them, and when I had an in-house marketing job, which I did for ten years, you know, I spent a lot of time in clients' offices and talking to them at events and exhibitions. You get an understanding of what they're like and what their values are and what their concerns are, and uh, they will more or less, if you ask the right questions write your copy for you. You know, they will tell you um, why they're buying your product. And to give you an example, we used to say for these reports that we were selling, um, helps you make more, you know, helps you make cost-effective decisions, better strategy and all the rest of it. This was like a £300 report that you'd be selling to Procter & Gamble. And I met somebody from Procter & Gamble one day at a show, and she said, oh, no, we don't, you know, we're not going to make a fifty million pound investment decision based on one of your reports. What we do is we take the brand share figures and we cut and paste them into one of our presentations, and it helps to convince the board to listen to us. And I was, oh, okay, you know, we've just been making things up basically. One conversation with the customer, mm-hmm. and they're always revealed. But I mean, you know, if you can't do that, then things like phone transcripts from call center, emails, letters. You know, I'm working on a promotion at the moment. Um, for a media brand, and one of the things I did, and you couldn't do this that long ago, is you look at the Twitter profiles of their followers, mm-hmm. and those little, you know, 140-word biographies under the photo are incredibly revealing in terms of what people think about themselves and how they view the world. Um, and the, the other technique that you can use, um, 
which having started this interview off by saying it's not all about language and it's not about loving words is to think like a writer, to think like a novelist specifically. And I would say once you've talked to the client and found out who their customers are, close your eyes and lean back and just imagine what this person is like. You know, we're all human beings. We all have very lively imaginations. You know, I did a, a website for a dating site once for sort of upmarket singles, I guess. And they, all they said to me was, picture a farmer's wife who's, who's been bereaved or divorced. You know, she's out in the sticks and she doesn't know what to do. And I just thought, wow, you know, I can really picture this woman and what she's like and what she's wearing and the dogs and everything. I'd never met her. But so talking to the client or the product owner can also be a great way of getting that one insight, if you like, that unlocks um, the customer's mindset and their motivation. My next question is, how can we use the seven deadly sins within our copywriting? <laughs> yeah, that is definitely from my design, isn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I think what's interesting about the seven deadly sins, and it really doesn't matter whether you're a religious person or not, is that when you look at them, they're the basic drivers of a great deal of human behavior. You know, they're not necessarily the good things about us. They're not necessarily the things that we wish were true or that we might care to reveal and say, oh, I do things because of altruism and fellow feeling like the Good Samaritan. But actually, these are the things that make human beings human. You know, greed and anger and covetousness and lust and laziness and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, what is a power lawnmower but an appeal to sloth, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So the people who wrote the Bible, they, they weren't laying these things down. Out there. You know, they didn't just say, we want people to stop being lustful and idolatrous. They were looking around them like copywriters do. They were observing what people did that got them into trouble. And all they really did was to codify those behaviours. So... One of the things I think, you know, I don't do that on every single project, but sometimes you think, wow, this is really just all about sin X, you know, lust or gluttony or laziness or anger or whatever it might be. And sometimes, in fact, they can be almost like psychological triggers and you can exploit them rather than just saying, ah, this is a benefit that appeals to such and such. Uh, if you know, for example, that a competitor's customers are getting really angry at their core customer service, mm-hmm. which is really easy to find out these days because it's always going viral. So we've got people who are angry, which is one of the seven deadly sins. Don't punish them for it, but just identify it and, and empathize with them. Mm-hmm. And you know that if you started talking, for example, in that situation about your customer service and how it's different and better, you know that you're exploiting that anger they feel towards their current suppliers to your advantage. My next question is, how can KFC help us with our copywriting? <laughs> well, yeah, it's uh, it's an acronym that, that I came up with myself. You know, I'm quite pleased with this because, as you know, a lot of copywriters, probably most of us are magpies and we tend to look around and steal ideas and it's you know, a lot of people saying I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and the rest of it. Um, KFC was something that I hope I came up with, you know, as a way of, as a mnemonic, if you like, for planning. And it's, it stands for what do you want your reader to know, to feel and to commit. And I've got a piece of paper on the desk in front of me right now with a three row grid with KFC down the left and right on the right. 
And again, in terms of, we're still very much thinking about our customer at this point. I'm still not really thinking what words am I going to write down. But what I am thinking is, let's take the cave example. What do I want them to know? You know, these are the facts about the product. I want them to know we care about them. I want them to know that we have 24-7 customer service. I want them to know that if they subscribe by direct debit, they're going to get the best price. Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but knowledge doesn't make the sale, as, as I'm sure you know. You know, that this is, people buy on emotion. We are non-rational creatures who have enough self-awareness to realize that. And because we don't like it, we need to then post-rationalize purchase decisions. So all that knowledge, all that information needs to be written down in my plan. I need to communicate one way or another all of the stuff that they're going to use to say, yeah, my decision is a good one because look at all of these things, fuel economy or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But it's the F word, feelings, that really, this is where, where you make the sale. And I think this is what separates you know, my experience as a trainer. The people who could really make something of themselves as a copywriter, you know, as a career, from people for whom it's just part of the job and it needs to be, you know, done. And and I would try and write down the, the emotional state or what do I want them to feel? Do we, do we want them to feel reassured that even though we're a brand new market entrant, we, you know, we, we, we have a backup, we can, we're reliable, we, we can help them out with this problem. Or, you know, even though I'm, Put it the other way around. Even though I'm a copywriter in my 50s, I understand the way children think. So we want people to be reassured. Perhaps we want them to feel confident. Perhaps we want them to feel negative emotions. Perhaps we want them to feel worried that if they don't do this thing now, they'll miss out forever. You know, that classic sort of restricted supply close would be a classic example of using the feeling of anxiety to our own ends. Um, but at any rate, what I'm looking for um, ultimately is one dominant emotion that I'm going to write down that um, is going to, if you like, that's the hook. That's the hook that I'm going to plant in their in their brain, in their soul. It's going to say, yes, you need this product. Yeah, it, you know, it does mean something to me. Yes, it is just like having a friend coming into my house every week. You know, it's a, it's a magazine. Because from there... They will start doing the selling for me, I think. Once they've made that decision emotionally, all I need to do is give them the information to, to justify it. And then the C is the commitment. This is the call to action. Uh, in fact, you know, you talked earlier about where most people go wrong with, uh, with copywriting. A lot of copywriters don't close. You know, they're, they're very bad at closing and to use a sort of old school sales phrase or word. Um, so I always want to have a very strong, definite and clear call to action, not, um, for example, join our mailing list or download a white paper or call our sales department because you know people just get paralyzed by choice. I want one thing. So it might be sign up for a five day mini course or download a white paper or place an order mm-hmm. or you know download a voucher. Because when you have one option, you get the highest possible response rate you know it's, it's about you know there's been a, a ton of testing over the years in the sort of direct response field that the more options you give people the, the more you depress overall response so my kfc you know knowledge feelings and commitment is a way of organizing my thoughts i guess and it it, it, it saves time as well because you don't go off down blind alleys by the time i get to the keyboard i've got a whole 
unruly pile of scribbled out bits of paper, but that tell me where I'm going to go. Um, they don't tell me how I'm going to get there, but that amount of thinking just kind of informs the way I write. Brilliant. In Right to Sell, you talk about the fact that sometimes we think we're selling one thing, but underneath it all, we're really selling something else. Do you have a formula for coming to understand what we are really selling? Um, I wish I did, um, because it would make my, my life a lot simpler. But I have an approach rather than a, a formula. And sure. I guess you know, we talked about this before in this interview, but rather than looking at the product, what I do is I, I start with the problem. Mm-hmm. I start with customer. You know, some people call it the point of pain. You know, I, we've talked about this idea of what keeps them awake at three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, starting with the problem has to be the way to go because you know yourself, we've all done it. If you have a problem, the what you know, the one thing you want more than anything else is for that problem to go away. And if somebody comes to you and says, I can make that problem go away for you, you say, Oh wow, how can you do that? Mm-hmm. So they're asking you, they're actually asking you to sell to them. You know, and incidentally, I think a lot of copywriters have a problem with the idea of selling at all. Um, I, I read a lovely description once that, you know, marketing was selling done by graduates. Um, you know, it's this slightly white glove kind of occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've done some face-to-face selling and all kinds. You know, I drove a van for a while and sold DIY products around London. Um, it's, it's a great training for copywriters because you, you get to understand that actually people want stuff. We're all being sold to all the time. What we don't want is to be sold to badly or we don't want to be sold irrelevant stuff. So finding out what the problem is, is is a great way to make sure, you know, that we're not being irrelevant. Um, there's a great example. I can't remember which sort of business guru said it, but builders don't want quarter inch drill bits. They want quarter inch holes. Uh-huh. You know, mm-hmm. now maybe you could get that with a 0.25 caliber bullet that you could shoot through a plank of wood. You know, if you had the right gun, you know, there we are. That's what they wanted. They don't care about whether it's a drill bit. It's the hole that they're interested in. Sure. So, you know, I mean, the example that I use, or one of the examples I used to write to sell, and I still think it's a good one, is the Harley Davidson motorbike. You get men, let's exclude sort of Hell's Angels for a moment, but you get a 40-year-old accountant, and, you know, it's a him, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, he buy, he goes and blows, what, 12, 13,000 pounds on a new Harley Davidson. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, as a form of two-wheel transport, a Harley is ludicrously overpriced, and crap, to be honest. I mean, you would never think this is the best way to get down the chop. You'd buy a little moped mm-hmm. for like a £1,200. You've got this big, heavy, expensive thing. It grinds itself every time you go around a corner. You know, if you drop it, you'll never be able to pick it up again. So why do these guys buy it? I mean, they will say to their wives or their friends, well, obviously, you know, it's, it's great for commuting. It does all this to the gallon and I can get through the traffic. The reason they're doing it is because it's rekindling this sort of male fantasy of the open road before it's too late. You know, it's 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 this idea of fading male potency. You know, it's either the Harley or the affair. So I guess the Harley is probably cheaper. Mm-hmm. So if I was promoting something like Harley's, I'd immediately be thinking about some sort of menopausal 45-year-old accountant because they're the kind of people who've got this sort of money above anything else. And I'm thinking it's all about freedom. It's about freedom from responsibility. Uh, and I'm thinking about art direction as well. I'm probably not going to show the motorbike. I'm going to show Route 66 with a bike in it so that they picture, you know, it's what I call life with a product. Um, 
you know, the, the, that sort of idea of let's go beyond the purchase decision and look at what it would be like if you actually did have this thing. You say in the book that we should be spelling out the different consequences of buying. What different ways can we do this? That's one way. I mean, you know, this idea that you, um, well, as a very tactical suggestion, use the present tense. Okay, a lot of copywriters will use the future tense. They will say, uh, you know, when you buy this thing, you will find that you will have the sort of um, life you've always dreamed of. People will look at you enviously on your Harley. Seeing they seem to be talking about Harleys at the moment, and they think, yeah. But the way you couch that piece of copy means it's <coughs> excuse me, it's one of two possible outcomes. You may be doing that or you may not be because it's all in the future. But listen what happens when you put it into the present tense. You take the day off. You open the garage. There she is waiting for you. You get astride that hand-stitched leather saddle and kick the engine into life. As the exhaust note blares out, you go down the road. Nothing is on your mind but the journey ahead. This guy is living that motorbike ride. And... In his mind, he's already bought it because if he hadn't bought it, how could he be on it? Mm-hmm. So it's the sort of thing you see. I mean, this isn't particularly far fetched as an idea. Cruise liners, you know, cruise ships do it all the time. They, 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 they describe your day on the ship in the present tense. As you come down the stairs to the ballroom, you see in front of you our fully stocked bar because that way somebody is just immediately in the, you know, in the zone. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Nice technique for doing it. Um, another way I think of spelling them out is to use that's a very crude, kind of old-fashioned idea of, of fear and greed. Um, on the one hand, what will they be missing out on if they don't buy? Or on the other hand, what will they be getting if, if they do buy? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm sure you've come across this idea of social proof where we say thousands or tens of thousands of of people just like you are already enjoying the benefits of this, you know, herbal cigarette or this, you know, quit smoking plan or whatever it might be. And then that's the fear kicking in. Well, you mean, I'm, I'm sort of not part of the in crowd. You know, I'm on the outside looking in. If all these people have decided it's a good idea and they're just like me, why aren't I doing this? And you can ramp up the pressure by having a time limited offer or only available for the first hundred customers. Or you, you, you flip the coin over and you talk about what they'll be getting if, you, if they do, you know, buy this thing off you. Interesting, I noticed on your website you interviewed Joe Sugarman a while ago. And I know that, you know, in, in his book, he talks about the fact that he'd always found that fear selling was, was more productive than greed selling, but he didn't always like it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he's a, like a, the ultimate tester. So, you know, sometimes you don't have to do what the tests tell you. Um, you know, that, that, for example, fear is a more powerful motivation than greed. But I've always said to people, the moment you start doing things you don't like, then you're letting your aesthetic preferences determine your commercial decisions. Um, you know, like with typefaces, there's all kinds of things that have been shown to work. If you don't want to do it, fine. But what you're really saying is, I don't want to maximise my income. And as long as you're comfortable with that, then fine, you, know, you go ahead and do it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm digressing slightly. Um, the other, the other good technique I think for spelling out consequences of buying um, is, is, is storytelling. And, and here, rather than using the present tense, you use the past tense. Um, my partner here at Sunfish is writing a charity letter at the moment, a fundraising letter for a CT scanner, 
and the you know the the opening is is, is essentially setting the setting the story up. What happened when I discovered so and so? I went to hospital. My consultant couldn't find out what was wrong. And the reason this is such a powerful technique is because it taps into a very deep seated human desire to be told stories. You know, we, we, we get told stories as children, of course, but why do we tell our children stories? And it's because we always have done, you know, going back to the dawn of language, storytelling has always been the way that human beings have communicated. It's actually quite important um, lessons about morals and behaviour and, and safety and so on. So uh, there's a sort of grab bag of techniques, if you like. You mentioned earlier benefits and how important they are. And you mentioned in your book nib benefits what are nib benefits and how do we use them okay well um that's another one of these sort of slightly tortured acronyms that copywriters are fond of coming up with because i think about pens but i was trying to at the time sell magazine subscription um i can't remember which title it was now but i was thinking about all the different benefits and i'd listed them out and they seem to me to be starting to group themselves into three categories so um Noble benefits, which is what the N stands for, noble. These are the benefits that we're quite prepared to admit to. You know, I was, I bought this thing because of this, you know, be a better person, you know, help the environment. If you think about all the products that claim to be environmentally friendly, mm-hmm. then that's a good example. So the noble benefit is, yes, I'm doing my bit for the environment. That's why I spent £700 on a hybrid um whatever, but a Prius or a hybrid lawnmower. The immediate benefits are just those sort of practical things that that almost offers with your premiums. But these are the things that you might as well say. Comes with a, you know, a free service, comes with a free tank of petrol, save £100 if you order before the end of May, whatever it might be. Just little sweeteners, really. But where it all happens, and this goes straight back to the seven daily sins, is what I call the base benefits in other words, these are the benefits that appeal to people's baser natures about greed and slothfulness and pride and lustfulness and all the rest. In other words, why are they really buying it? I mean, I'm a bit of a petrol head um, and I, I don't think I have a great deal of time for hybrids, especially not, let's say that the price when that came out. Why do people buy an ugly, expensive hybrid that probably is going to cost them more to run than their old car and the answer is because they they can feel smug about their environmentalism i think it, it, it well let's put it this way it reinforces their their self-image mm-hmm. so that's a that's a sort of you know a, a fairly selfish thing to do really. to, they're not really saving the planet because you they just bought a brand new car which has got all sorts of metals and you know heavy metals in it and all the rest of it if they were really serious, they'd buy a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's that base benefit. Now, I would almost never, and probably never, actually come out in copy and refer to these B benefits, these base benefits. But in my planning, in what, my thinking about the customer, I'm thinking this is what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So one way or another, when it comes to choosing the words and arranging them on the screen, I'm thinking. This is, this is, this is, this is where the sale is going to happen. So subtly, I'm going to have to find a way to help them or to reinforce this idea that everyone's going to look at me. Yes, you are the ultimate environmentalist. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, so that's it, really. Noble, immediate, and base. It's, it's another one of those three-column grids that I have sort of scattered around the office. Um, I don't use it every time, but often you'll... What, why it's useful is because the noble benefits are the things that you know people will justify their purchase with. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll give themselves permission, if you like, to buy. But they want that permission because of the base ones. Why should we use Anglo-Saxon words in our copywriting? Yeah, this is a... Um, another take on that whole plain English debate. Um, you know, potted history le- lesson, you know, 1065, everyone in Britain spoke Anglo-Saxon. 1066, we were invaded by the Normans. And suddenly, if you wanted to be anybody in Norman England, you had to speak French. Mm-hmm. So Anglo-Saxon fell out of favour. And French, with its classical roots in Latin and Greek, became the sort of default language of the, the ruling class and the elite. And ever since then, we've had this hang-up about Anglo-Saxon, that it's, it's not really suitable for polite conversation. And we will say lacerate rather than cut and terminate rather than end. And all of these coming in will say significant rather than very. So gradually what happens, and you see it with children, you know, I have two young kids and they're being taught and they need to be taught to use long words because they want to develop their vocabulary. The problem, I think, is that when you move away from Anglo-Saxon words, two things happen. One is that you move away from fast comprehension. Okay. In other words, Anglo-Saxon words are usually much easier to understand and decode. And, and secondly, Anglo-Saxon words have a much more visceral punch to them. And that would be a good example. And visceral is clearly not a, an Anglo-Saxon word, but punch is. If we said uh, impact, you might think, yeah, that's a good powerful word but it's not as powerful as punch i think punch has a, a kind of pop to it and it, it has a visual quality to it it's an action if we were to say we're significantly reducing our marketing budget well significantly reducing is definitely that sort of upscale classical derived language if if you say we're going to slash the marketing budget suddenly people start worrying mm-hmm. which presumably we want them to do if we're using those sort of language. So the, the two reasons to use Anglo-Saxon, one, they're easier to understand, they're faster to understand, which means your meaning is clearer. And secondly, they carry a lot more emotional weight. Are you just incredibly good at English, Andy, and you know all the differences and origins of certain words? Or do you have any reference books that you use at all? You know what, I, I, I am good at English. It's, uh-huh. it's something in my brain. I mean, I come from a long line of... Um, you know, people who are good with right with with words. I mean, not necessarily in a scholarly or academic way. My grandpa was a butcher, mm-hmm. but he was a lifelong, you know, to use another Latin word, autodidact. You know, he taught himself, mm-hmm. um, and he loved language and wrote poetry. My dad's written a, a ton of poetry, so it happens to just run in the blood. And I see it in my children. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's why I'm a good copywriter, but it does certainly help. But, you know, I've got a shelf full of dozens of reference books on sales and advertising marketing and English. But I wouldn't want people to think that what you need is a a good grasp of English. Um, You almost need a poor grasp of English. I reckon I could I reckon if you gave a university English lecturer and a hairdresser, I could get a hairdresser to be a far better copywriter than the lecturer because hairdressers understand people. And. They don't necessarily have a massive intellectual, you know, wellspring of, of knowledge about English. And that's a good thing because I'm constantly saying to university educated copywriters, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. You know, 
don't don't say visceral if you just need to do with your gut. You know, use a simpler word. And then people say, well, aren't I dumbing down? No, you're not dumbing down. You're actually making it more engaging to more people. Uh, And bear in mind that what we are writing, most people think of as junk mail, spam, marketing fluff, whatever you want, whatever, um, you know, disparaging word you want to use about copywriting. Apart from copywriters, everybody thinks what we write is junk. Mm -hmm. So why make junk hard to understand? That seems to me to be completely counterproductive. I want my junk mail to be so easy to understand that all they're focusing on is life with the product. The moment they come across the word they never heard before, they don't reach for a dictionary. They just skip over it or throw it in the bin or feel alienated. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, are they, I kind of get on my soapbox a bit, but, you know, that's why I think Anglo-Saxon is so important. My final question is, what mistakes will ruin a piece of copy? Failure to sell. Let's keep it as, as simple as that. You know, um, it's the worst culprits are the people who profess to love writing. Um, the mistake, and here's an example, okay? Let's say the big answer is failure to sell. There's a little two-letter English word that I think ruins copy, and I see it all the time. Right at the end, you get a call to action, and it says, if you would like to place an order, dot, 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 mm-hmm. if. And I think, what's this if? This says... You, the writer, you, the salesperson, consider that there are two possibilities here. I will buy it or I won't. And you give your reader, you give your customer a, a get out, the abandonment, you know, rape thing. Mm-hmm. Never use it in a call to action. It's place your order now. Click here to place your order. Book now. So we use the imperative mood to use that, sort of, you know, fancy sort of linguistic phrase. You give people a command. Great. Andy, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's very much appreciated. Where can we get more from you in terms of information and training? And also, where can we find your books? Okay, um, well, thanks for giving that opportunity to just sort of lead into a gentle um, plug for my Copywriting Academy, which is, um, we call it online learning for copywriters. There's a ton of free downloads and there's a blog there with about 160 articles. We have some courses there. And that's copywritingacademy.co.uk. Um, and good old Amazon has all four books. Um, and, you know, there's all the reviews there, which are mostly positive. So I hope to see some of your listeners, you know, joining us at the Academy. Excellent. That's the end of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in. Andy, once again, thank you so much as well. My pleasure. Thanks, Joey. The Online Marketing Show. Every day with Joseph Bushnell. Helping you to grow your online business by driving more traffic, improving conversion rates, increasing customer value, and getting things done fast. Listen, take action, make money.